The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. It's a joy to be with you here. The only Bible Jesus had was the Old Testament, and he said it was about him. Paul was an Old Testament preacher. It was all the Bible he had. And yet to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, he said, I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. How many Old Testament preachers preach like that? And as I considered the opportunity that's been given me to unpack what's in this 500-page book, I thought, well, I, I can't really do that. And so what, what do I give? What, what part of this do I give? And so here's what I've decided to do. I've decided to supply seven ways that you as ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, seven ways that you and your people can see and savor the divine son in all of scripture. To see him, to taste and see that he is good, and in the process, savor him, treasure him. That's what I want for you. It's what I want for my own family. It's what I want to see happen among the nations. To that end, let's pray. Dear Lord, you are the one who gave us Jesus. You are the one that worked for his glory. By him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones and dominions, rulers and authorities, created through him and for him. All things, including the Old Testament. So we ask that for Christ's glory, you would meet us now. May there be a manifestation of the Spirit's presence in this room for the glory of Jesus. And may... The encounter that we have with the resurrected Son of God and the initial three-fourths of the Bible shape us. For the good of your church, we pray. Amen. So I hope you have a handout. I'm going to track that. First three statements. Three statements are foundational principles concerning Jesus' relationship to the Old Testament. I, I need to go through these quickly. Number one, the Old Testament... Rather than the new, it's the Old Testament that first promises the good news that you and I enjoy. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, set apart as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God that was promised beforehand through his prophets in the sacred writings concerning his son. Romans 1, 1 through 3. The gospel was first anticipated in the Old Testament and then realized in the New. Number two, a proper understanding of the Old Testament will move us to identify a unified message focused on the Messiah and the mission he would spark. After his resurrection in Luke 24, Jesus met with those in the upper room and it says he helped them understand the scriptures. What does that look like? As it is written, the Son will suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and repentance and forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in His name to all nations. 
when he unpacked the scriptures, what he saw was a a message of the life, death, and resurrection of the Messiah and the mission that he would spark. Is that what you see when you approach the Old Testament? That's what we're supposed to see. That's what Jesus saw when he opened up his Bible. And number three, as I already said in my prayer, God created all things, including the Old Testament, by the Son, through the Son, for the Son. So the Old Testament was written for the glory of the Son. The Old Testament is foundation. The New Testament is fulfillment. All of it points to and is upheld by, concerns Jesus. But to say that all of it points to him, concerns him, doesn't mean that it does so all in the same way. We've got to be careful in how we appropriate the Old Testament so that we can do it faithfully for the glory of Jesus. Jesus fulfills or realizes the Old Testament in a manifold number of ways. And so what I want to consider is seven of those ways that he fulfills the Old Testament. All of them of which provide you and I as men and women, interpreters of the scripture and as as proclaimers of the book. Provide us different ways that we can see and savor Christ. Number one. When you read the Old Testament's direct messianic predictions, then see and savor the realization of the divine son. If I was to say, how would you find Jesus in the Old Testament? This is probably the first place you would go. I want to look at those direct messianic predictions. Peter said, what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that the Christ would suffer, thus he has fulfilled. Every one of them speak about the sufferings of the Christ, Acts 3.18. Every one of the prophets from Moses onward anticipated the work of the Messiah and the mission that he would spark. The Old Testament is just loaded with explicit and implicit predictions. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. These words in Isaiah portray a servant of God who would suffer as a substitute for many. And Peter, reading his Bible, reaches right back there and sees the text fulfilled in Jesus. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we are healed. Direct prediction fulfilled in the person of Christ. 1 Peter 2, 24. The Lord promised Abraham that a single male offspring would possess the gate of his enemies and that through that offspring, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Genesis 22, 17 and 18. Then Paul notes that the gospel of international blessing that God promised Abraham actually comes to the Gentiles through Jesus. Here's Paul in Galatians 3. The promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, who is Christ, and if you are Christ, then you are heirs of, you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Similarly, the Lord says to Ezekiel, I'll set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. Ezekiel 34. Then in John 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And again, there will be one flock, one shepherd. 
So at times the element of prediction is even more pronounced. Like in Micah 5.2 when it declares, But you Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you be small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come from me a ruler. And then Matthew, in chapter 2 verse 6, explicitly asserts, It happened just as the prophet spoke. Christ fulfills the Old Testament as the specific focus of direct messianic predictions. Number two, when you consider the Old Testament salvation historical story and trajectories, then see and savor how the divine son stands as the goal and the climax of all of scripture's progress and integration. The Old Testament just does a great job creating problems that Jesus supplies the solution for. Both the old and the new are framed by a story. A story of salvation that moves from creation, cons- creation, fall, redemption, consummation. All of this plot line magnifies that God reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ. Now, years back, in just wanting to help my own kids and my students get their hands on the story, I understood how the story went, but I just wanted to see if I could package it in a certain way. And so the Lord helped me. If you were to say, Jesus, what are you here to preach? He'd say, I was here to proclaim the good news of the kingdom. So I said, is there any way I could use that acronym, kingdom, to help unpack scripture storyline so that people like you can go home and remember it? K, every good sporting event begins with a kickoff. K is kickoff and rebellion. What we're talking about here is creation, fall, and flood. Kickoff and rebellion. God creates a a right world. He rests on his throne. He has imagers who will carry his glory to the ends of the earth. That's the commission. And yet, peace is interrupted. The fall happens. And it moves on and culminates in the flood. I. Seventy families are kicked, are pushed away at the Tower of Babel, flowing out of the flood. And God chooses one of those families, Abraham, the patriarchs, to be the instrument of blessing. I is instrument of blessing. Through you, Abraham, the global problem of curse is going to be resolved. Through you, I'm going to raise up a single male ruler. He'll be in the line of Judah. And when he comes... The serpent's skull will be crushed. Instrument of blessing. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the twelve arrive in Egypt. They're in need of a rescue. N, the nation redeemed and commissioned. Exodus, Sinai, wilderness. God creates a nation of people. And the world was not here for Israel's sake. Israel was here for the sake of the world. They were called to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation in the midst of all this chaos. And through them, God would raise up the royal offspring. They arrived at Sinai. There was problems there. But they were heading somewhere. Where they were heading was the land, the promised land. 
and we get G, government in the land, conquest in kingdoms. The 12 tribal confederacy moves into a monarchy with Saul, David, Solomon. Then the kingdom separates into two, Israel in the north, Judah in the south, 20 kings in the north, 10 different dynasties, 20 kings in the south, one dynasty, the line of David. Yet ultimately, hope has not failed, but sin continues. And what happens? Exile. Exile and initial restoration. D is dispersion and return. Dispersion and return. And this brings us to the end of the Old Testament storyline. The Old Testament ends without the realization of all the anticipations of the king who would rise, of the blessing he would bring, of the hearts that would be changed, of the kingdom that he would establish. And so we move from the Old Testament into the New, into an overlap of the ages. What Jesus does is he brings the future into the middle of history. He brings the kingdom into the present, into an all-readiness, even all the while, while the age of Adam continues. The old creation, the old covenant, the old age gets overlapped with the new creation, the new covenant, and the new age. But Jesus brings future into the present. And all of a sudden, life and death are not the same. We still battle sin, but it's not the same problem. We now have blood-bought power for overcoming bitterness and laziness and lust. And death cannot hold us. It becomes a passage into gain. Cancer and car accidents are not the final word now that Jesus has come and the kingdom is expanding in this overlap of the ages. This is about Christ's work and the church age. That's the overlap period. Christ's work and the church age. When the gospel of the kingdom has entered in and the good news is moving, it's moving through suffering and through sharing, the kingdom of God expanding and filling the nations, all in order and in anticipation of mission accomplished. This is Christ's return and kingdom consummation. This is the hope to which we look. When the curse will be abolished, and there will be no more tears, and we will be in the presence of the risen king forever. The biblical authors highlight this progression of salvation history. The law and the prophets were until John. After that, the kingdom of God is proclaimed. Luke 16. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Romans 10. The law was our guardian until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we're no longer under the guardian. Jesus is at the center of history. And he alters all of reality. The plot line of scripture from from creation to consummation, from Genesis to Revelation, is guided by the progression of five covenants. All of which find their terminus in Jesus. In fulfillment of the Adamic, Noahic covenant, all the covenants are designated by the head or the mediator of that covenant, except the last one, which is the new In fulfillment of the Adamic Noahic covenant, Jesus is the Son of Man, the last Adam, the very image of God. 
in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. Jesus is the offspring of Abraham and the agent of universal blessing. In fulfillment of the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, Jesus represents Israel. He stands as God's son, Yahweh's servant. He's the embodiment of all wisdom. He's the one who fulfilled the law's demands, and he is the substance of all old covenant shadows. In fulfillment of the new covenant promises, sorry, the Davidic covenant. In fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, Jesus is the king of the Jews, the son of David. And finally, in fulfillment of the new covenant promises, Jesus is the prophet like Moses, who was made to come and transform reality. He is the only true mediator between God and man. And then there's many themes that... that Help identify this development and progress of God's kingdom purposes that culminate culminate in Jesus. Things like covenant, kingdom, law, temple, God's presence, atonement, mission. All of these find their fulfillment in Christ. Christ fulfills all the Old Testament salvation historical trajectories. And for you as ministers of the book, if you can identify where in the Old Testament you are, You can take your people to Jesus. Number three, when you recognize similarities and contrasts between the old and new ages, creations, and covenants, then see and savor how the divine son influences all reality. The progress of the biblical covenants and the history of redemption displays numerous points of continuity and discontinuity, many of which are centered right on the person of Jesus. Many of the analogies and the differences come in what the New Testament calls types. I'll talk about that in my next point. Type, antitype, relationships. But there's other major similarities between the Old and the New Covenants. One of them is in the structure of grace. You know that the Old Covenant didn't start at Sinai. It started at the Exodus. There was a redemption that preceded the law giving. Similarly, in the New Covenant, sanctification follows, overflows from justification. We are justified or redeemed, and then we're called to follow. There's a similar structure of grace between the old and the new. And recognizing the analogies as you're working through the Old Covenant material can help us identify for our people how the New Covenant is a better covenant. Now, although there's a similar structure of grace, something more important is at stake, is that there is a different nature of grace between the old and the new. While it was true that Israel was redeemed out of Egypt, most of them were hard-hearted and rebellious, unregenerate. The salvation only went skin deep. It didn't reach the heart. Similarly, when they arrived at the mountain and they were given the law, this beautiful, holy, righteous, and good law, it didn't influence their hearts. In fact, it was written on tablets of stone and put in a box so that no one could read it. What we need is to become that box. That box was placed in the Holy of Holies where the image of an idol in an ancient temple would have usually been. What we need to do is get into that holy of holies. We need that law to be etched on our heart so that now we can image God and be read by all, says Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. The significant difference between the old and the new is that the nature of grace in the old covenant was 
substantially external for the majority. Whereas in the new covenant, it's internalized for all. It's internal redemption, overcoming sin, reconciliation with God, and it's empowerment. The law written on our hearts by the Spirit. Numerous other points of contrast or progression are also apparent. Whereas Adam disobeyed and brought death to all, Christ obeys and brings life to many. Romans 5. Whereas God used the blood of bulls and goats to picture atonement in the Old Covenant, Christ's own substitutionary sacrifice provides the only ground for eternal redemption. Hebrews 9. Whereas access to the Lord's presence in the temple was restricted to the high priest on the day of atonement, Christ's priestly work opens the way for all of us to enjoy the life-giving presence of God. Hebrews 9 and 10. Whereas the, national, the, whereas the nations needed to come to the tabernacle and temple in order to encounter the Lord's presence in the Old Covenant, the Spirit now inhabits the people, and the temple of God has expanded from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, so that the temple of God is now coming to the people. The very presence of God is able to be met by those on the far side of the globe because you go. The work of Jesus creates both continuities and discontinuities. And we can celebrate the work of Jesus more if you as the interpreter of the book and as the expositor of the book are able to identify the similarities and the differences. Number four. When you identify Old Testament characters, events, and institutions or objects that clarify or anticipate the person and work of Jesus then see and savor the divine Son as the substance of all earlier Old Covenant shadows. The author of Hebrews said the Old Testament law was a shadow of the good things to come. Hebrews 10.1 Similarly, Paul said clean and unclean food laws, the various Jewish festivals, the monthly sacrificial calendar, even the Sabbath were a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Colossians 2, 16 and 17. So in the New Testament, these anticipations and pointers in the Old Testament are called types or examples pointing ahead to the substance that is Jesus. God structured the progression of salvation history in such a way that certain characters or events or institutions foreshadowed all that would be embodied in the person and the work of Christ. So without any attempt to be exhaustive, I just want to supply some examples of some of these types that if you can identify them in the old, it provides you a bridge to point directly to Jesus. Typological persons. Consider, for example, Adam. Paul actually says Adam was a type of the one who would come in Romans 5. Adam was a type of Christ as the ultimate human. Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Melchizedek was a type for Christ's eternal royal priesthood, Hebrews 5, 6, and 7. Moses was a type of Christ's prophetic role. I'll raise up a prophet like you. And Jesus is the summation. Jonah's time and departure from the belly of the fish made him a type for Christ's burial and resurrection. Certain persons in the Old Testament that the way that, they're, that the story is told, the, the person himself is set up as a 
a foreshadowing of the one who would come. How about typological events or activities? Every one of God's major creative or redemptive acts in the Old Testament anticipates Christ's salvific work. Creation gives rise to new creation. The original exodus points to a better second exodus. The destruction of Samaria and Jerusalem on the day of the Lord finds culmination first in the cross event and then at the ultimate end of reality. The initial restoration to the land following the exile prepares for a more ultimate restoration in a new heavens and a new earth. We have things like Just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That one event foreshadows something greater. The flood and Red Sea deliverances, Peter and Paul tell us, typified or or pointed to the flood event. The smiting of the rock typified the Christ as the Redeemer, as the, the curse bearer. How about typological institutions or objects? What we're talking about here are things like the tabernacle and its furniture or the temple and Jesus saying, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He is the temple and because we're in him, we become the temple and the presence of Christ works through us by his spirit. The Old Testament priesthood anticipated Christ's high priestly role. The Passover lamb typified Christ's substitutionary role as behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The substitutionary sacrifices in Leviticus pointed ahead to Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. Clean and unclean food laws, the various Jewish festivals, all of them point in a typological way to a greater substance, that is Jesus. And if you as ministers of the gospel, opening up the initial three-fourths of your Bible, are able to identify the types, you have fodder for making much of the divine son. Number five. When you revel in Yahweh's identity and activity, in Yahweh, that's, that's God, creator of heaven and earth, redeemer of Israel. When you revel in his identity and activity within the Old Testament, then I urge you, see and savor the person of the divine son. You'll recall that Jesus said, no one has seen the father except the son. But that if you've seen me, you've seen the father. What this means is that when God shows up in bodily form in the Old Testament... If no one has seen the Father, then who are we looking at? We're seeing a manifestation of Yahweh's presence through, it seems to me, most likely, the pre-incarnate Son of God. So, this figure shows up in the stories of Abraham's third guest, Jacob's wrestling opponent, Joshua's commander of the army of Yahweh, Ezekiel's exalted king, Daniel's son of man, and numerous other Messenger or angel of the Lord figures. We also see him in Isaiah's vision of the Lord, seated on the throne, high and lifted up. Remember how John, reflecting on that text in Isaiah 6, in John 12, what did he say? The prophet saw Jesus' glory and spoke of him. 
Each of these revelations are glimpses of the promised Christ who would come as the God-man. So when we read these texts, we should see and we should savor the image of the divine son that's being given us. But there's more. There's more. You'll remember how the Lord, Yahweh, in disclosing himself in Exodus chapter 3, he said, I am who I am. Echyeh, Usher, Echyeh. I am who I am. What does Jesus do with that one phrase in the New Testament? Consider the Gospel of John. Jesus is the calmer of storms. I am. Do not be afraid. John 6. He's the all-satisfying one. I am the bread of life. John 6. Jesus is the ultimate guide and enabler. I am the light of the world. John 8. He's the one in whom you and I must be saved. Unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. John 8. He's the one whom people link with Yahweh after his death and resurrection. When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. John 8. I'm telling you this now, that when the resurrection takes place, you may believe that I am. John 13. Jesus is the one who existed before Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am. John 8. He's the only entry into refuge. I am the door of the sheep. John 10. He's the ultimate provider and protector. I am the good shepherd. John 10. He's the one who provides eternal life and access to the Father. I am the resurrection and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. John 14. He is the one who helps us grow. I am the true vine. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, John 15. And then he's the one whose identity demands homage. When Jesus said, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. John 18. So when you hear the Lord speaking or acting in the Old Testament as the object of the people's faith, we're actually seeing the very one who would embody himself in Jesus. The word who was in the beginning with God was God, John 1. The very son would be named Jesus. This very one was in the form of God. He was the very image of the invisible God. He was the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Thus, the author of Hebrews could attribute Moses' reproach for God's sake as a reproach endured for Christ. Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Hebrews 11.26 This is also why Jude could identify Israel's deliverer at the Exodus as Jesus. Now I want to remind you that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, Jude 5. So I ask you, who fought for Israel and rescued them at the Exodus? Was it not Yahweh? Yes, and it was Jesus. Similarly, 
Jesus said that if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. John 14. For he does only what the Father commands him. What the Father is doing. John 15. So there's this close identity between Jesus and Yahweh. This close identity is unpacked in texts like Isaiah 42, where the servant at the beginning of the chapter is said to be one who will redeem the blind, who will serve as a guide, who will overcome darkness with light, who will put shame Put to shame, carved idols. And then at the end of the chapter, it's all those things that Yahweh says, I will do. Isaiah 53 even tags the suffering servant, the very arm of Yahweh. Isaiah said, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. That is, prepare the way of Yahweh. And each of the gospel writers identify this with John the Baptist pointing to his cousin. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Joel proclaimed, everyone who calls on the name of Yahweh will be saved. And Peter in Acts chapter 2 draws on that very text. And Paul applies the verse to Jesus in Romans 10. Who is the Lord? It's Jesus. Who is the Lord? It's Yahweh. Malachi asserted that a new Elijah would come before the day when Yahweh would return. When the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And Jesus claimed that John the Baptist was this Elijah who himself pointed to the Christ as the anticipated Lord of Malachi 3 and 4. Christ's words bear unparalleled authority. He was doing on earth what only God could do. Commanding demons and healing the sick. Forgiving sins and raising the dead. Every Old Testament manifestation of God's punishment and his pardon, his retribution and reconciliation, directly foreshadows and ultimately flows from the work of God's Son. Whom he appointed the heir of all things. Through whom he created the world. Who is the very radiance of the glory of God. And the exact imprint of his nature. Who upholds the universe by the very word of his power. This very word that was God. Became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only begotten. Full of grace and truth. So when we meet Yahweh in the Old Testament, we're catching glimpses of the divine Son. You can preach the text that way. The New Testament authors did. Number six, when you observe how the Old Testament law and wisdom express ethical ideals, then I urge you to see and celebrate the justifying work of the divine Son. The Old Testament is filled with stories of sinners who needed a savior. The Mosaic law pointed to the importance of Christ in the way that it identified and multiplied sin, in the way that it imprisoned the sinful, in the way that it showed everyone's need for atonement. The law, by its very nature, predicted Christ as the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of God's character. That is, 
He is the ideal image of dependence, law-keeping, wisdom, praise, perseverance. Paul stressed both that in the law we have the embodiment of all knowledge and truth, Romans 2.20. He also said that that the law is holy and that the commandment is holy, righteous, and good, Romans 7.12. The same can be said of our Christ who remained sinless, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Paul stressed, but now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The very righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. So figures like Moses and David and Isaiah anticipated the very righteousness that was displayed through the gospel. It's bound up in Christ's perfect obedience, climaxing in his death on the cross, through which we alone are justified by faith. Jesus incarnated the very portrait of the worshiping sufferer and the victorious king in the Psalms. He perfectly kept his father's commands. He perfectly abided in his father's love. Through Christ's substitutionary work, God canceled the record of debt that stood against you and me with all of its legal demands, Colossians 2. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, Romans 8, 3 and 4. As God's word made flesh, Jesus manifests in his person the very essence of every ethical ideal aligned with Yahweh's revealed will. And it is this perfection that is then imputed or counted or reckoned to us. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification of life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of the one will many be made righteous. Romans 5, 18 and 19. And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Philippians 3, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. So what I'm saying is that with every law, with every wisdom saying that we, that we read in the Old Testament, we have a bridge to build to Jesus who is the perfect embodiment of every ethical ideal, and so we can celebrate the justifying work of the divine Son when we read the law and when we read the wisdom. Number seven. When you use the Old Testament to teach, and I hope you will, when you use the Old Testament to instruct or guide others, calling them to love and thus fulfill the law, then see and savor the sanctifying work of the divine son. The New Testament authors recognized that the Old Testament law was imposed until the time of Reformation, Hebrews 9. They said the law was our guardian until Christ came, but now that Christ has come, we're no longer under the guardian. Nevertheless, Paul, principally with his Old Testament in hand, could say to Timothy, all scripture is useful, 
for teaching and rebuking and correcting and training in righteousness. All of it. Now, in this context, Timothy, having been raised up by a Jewish mother, a Jewish grandmother, Paul just got done saying, you, Timothy, were raised up on the sacred writings that are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ. All Scripture. The sacred writings that this little Jewish boy was raised up on that were able to make him wise through faith in Christ, wise for salvation, are the very scriptures that are inspired by God and useful to correct people from. What we have to recognize is that Paul and the other apostles... We're convinced on the one hand that, the old, that, that Christians are not in any way directly under the Old Covenant law. The Old Covenant law has no direct binding relationship on the believer. And yet all of the law, every bit of it, has indirect authority. Indirect through the mediation of Christ. We have to ask, what did Jesus' law fulfillment do to this law? How does it relate to us on this side? But all of it still matters. And I unpack some of that in the last chapter of my book. How do we do that? Thus he could say to Timothy, preach the word. Which at that time was principally the Old Testament. You, new covenant preacher. You, new covenant Sunday school teacher. Preach the word. Jesus' Bible. The initial three-fourths of our Christian scriptures. The Old Testament continues to matter for Christians, but we approach it only through the light and the lens of Christ. As Paul said elsewhere, to this day, when the majority of Jews read the Old, Old Covenant materials, the same veil remains over their eyes because only through Christ is it taken away. Jesus' coming unlocks the significance of the Old Testament text. And through him, we now have access to such a massive amount of scripture that can clarify how to love God and love neighbor. Some of the Old Testament promises that find their yes in Christ are those that predicted how new covenant believers would actually fulfill the law, living it out. Moses promised, for example, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord with all. Two verses later, you will return and you will hear the voice of the Lord and you will obey all that I am commanding you today. In the day when hearts are circumcised, Deuteronomy is going to matter, says Moses. Ezekiel, promised, I will put my spirit within you, says the Lord, and I will cause you in that day to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey all my rules. Ezekiel 36. This is the day of restoration, when all the children shall be taught by the Lord. Isaiah 54, John 6. So having the law written on our hearts what we're told in Jeremiah is, they shall all know the Lord from the least of them to the greatest of them. No longer a distinction within the covenant community between remnant and rebel. Rather, everyone in the community, from the smallest to the greatest, will all know the Lord in that day. Both Moses and Ezekiel predicted a future 
day when God's people would keep the Lord's statutes through his one act of righteousness, through his perfect statute keeping, Jesus secures our justification, fulfilling this righteous requirement of the law in us, and by this moving us to live by the Spirit, Romans 8. So we who are in Christ are now empowered to keep the very precepts of the law in light of the fulfillment that Christ has wrought as we live with circumcised hearts by the power of the Spirit. We fulfill the law as we love our neighbor with Christ our teacher. His own law fulfillment now clarifying for us what it means to follow God. So in Jesus we find a new pattern that Moses never had. A new pattern for surrender and service. In Jesus, we receive a true pardon. And what that pardon does is that it purchases for us power. And that pardon also purchases for us promises to motivate our life of faith. So when we instruct, when we rebuke, when we correct from the Old Testament, do not do so without seeing and savoring the sanctifying work of the divine son. To preach from the Old Testament without Jesus is to declare wrath on people. When they come to your church and sit in your class, a Jew should not feel comfortable. That's what I'm saying. So I've given seven ways that Christ fulfills all of the hopes of the Old Testament. Each of these provides readers and teachers, I think, just fresh avenues for helping our people see, helping our people savor Jesus. We do so by reading the Old Testament, the Old Testament's direct messianic predictions, by considering the Old Testament's salvation historical story and trajectories, by recognizing similarities and contrast between the old and new ages, creations and covenants. We see and savor Jesus by identifying how Old Testament characters, events, and institutions or objects help clarify and anticipate his person and his work. We do so by, reveal, by reveling in Yahweh's identity and his activity, by observing how the Old Covenant law characterizes the nature of perfect righteousness and wisdom embodied in the Christ. And we do so by using the Old Testament to instruct or guide others and helping them experience the power to love and thus fulfill the law. Now, if you're working through the Old Testament and none of those seven help you make much of Jesus, then I just urge you, step back and remember this. We only have a Bible because of grace. The written word of God is given in a context after the fall. Which means, rather than wiping out rebels, rebels, God gave them a book. The very presence of letters on a page, God speaking to us in a way that, he, that we can understand is all part of a blood-bought experience of common grace that provides a context for saving grace to go active. So even if you can't figure out, what do I do? None of these seven seem to work, which I would question. Just step back and say, you and I are sitting here today because God chose not to send a flood upon sinners again. 
And that flood was initiated by a sacrifice in Romans, in, in Genesis 8, 21, 20 and 21. And that sacrifice foreshadowed what Christ would do. Christ purchasing a very context where the word of God could be given to sinners so that you and I could enjoy the very presence of Jesus. Father, thank you that you have disclosed your son through this book. Help us see him and savor him more for his glory and our joy. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.